Profiles in Teaching with Technology is a podcast series created by Music First, a company dedicated to providing world-class cloud-based tools, content, and classroom management platforms to music teachers around the world. Each episode features a K-12 music educator who uses technology to enhance their teaching in innovative ways. We'll discuss the what, why, and how of their technology integration and hopefully share some teaching strategies that you can use in your own classroom. For more information about Music First, please visit www.musicfirst.com. There you'll be able to find out about all of our platforms, as well as sign up for a free 30-day trial. Steve Holly is a music educator, bassist, and author living in Boston, Massachusetts. He holds a PhD in music learning and teaching from Arizona State University, as well as a bachelor's and master's in jazz classical bass performance from the University of Memphis. As a teacher, Steve previously served as the producer for the commercial music program at the Kent Denver School outside of Denver, Colorado for 19 years. During his tenure, the R&B, soul, salsa, and jazz bands of the CMP were recognized by Downbeat Magazine's Student Music Awards 15 times. As a bassist, Steve has recorded on over 100 studio projects and has played over 10,000 gigs across the world in every style of music imaginable. As a writer, in addition to authoring dozens of articles, book chapters, and blog posts for NAFME, Gen, APME, and other music education-focused publications, Steve authored the book Coaching a Popular Music Ensemble, blending formal, non-formal, and informal approaches in the rehearsal, and co-edited Action-Based Approaches in Popular Music Education, a text featuring chapters from 26 experienced popular music educators discussing their teaching approaches to the popular music learning space. Currently, Steve serves as the president of the Association for Popular Music Education. He and his family recently moved to Boston, Massachusetts with their two rescue Boston Terriers, Matilda and Clementine. It is my great pleasure and honor to have Steve on the podcast this week. So once every four years, I get the opportunity, and it doesn't happen all the time, to have a leap year podcast episode. And so for this leap year in 2024, I am absolutely uh, thrilled to have Steve Holly on the podcast. Um, you know, I just read his bio. You know a little bit more about him. But Steve, thanks so much for being here. I really appreciate it. And happy leap year. Well, same to you, Jim. Thanks so much for having me this morning. I appreciate it. So um, the way I start every podcast um, is talking about the music educator's individual um, kind of path from finding out they like music uh, to where <laughs> you are today. And, and uh, you know, in about 10 minutes, thumbnail sketch, if you could trace your career for us and, and, and you know, w- up to, you know, your current role, uh, that would be great. Absolutely. Uh, so my, typically you don't want to go all the way back, but for me, I kind of have to go all the way back to answer the question. Um, so my, I was a band kid early on, uh, before I was even in band in high school or middle school, because my mother was a band director. My mother was my band director. Um, so I grew up literally um you know drawing hash helping her set up the practice field for uh you know for marching practice out there with a big can of diesel drawing the hash lines i'm certain there was some osha violations involved there uh carrying the banner for parades going to football games on weekends so i don't i don't remember a time 
when I wasn't involved in music in some way, shape or form. Um, my mother also, she was pretty great on uh, in several areas, but musically, um, she graduated um, from a school in Louisiana, Louisiana Tech University. And she was, to my knowledge, the first person there to graduate uh, with, with four separate concentrations. Oh, so wow. she was a music education major, and she also did performance majors or minors maybe in French horn and piano and voice and violin. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I know. So she just kind of set the bar high um, early on. So she not only took lessons in all those, but my understanding is did recitals and all those. So and when and she brought that into the house. So growing up, we had a piano. We had a violin. She would practice her French horn. She would go sing at a church. She was um, the lead in MAME for our, our small town musical at one point. Um, her her jazz quintet rehearsed in our living room. So there was a huge Rhodes, you know, a huge Rhodes suitcase oh. set up in our living room. And um, so that was kind of the atmosphere I grew up in. And, uh, you know, when I decided to, when the opportunity became available um, before my sixth grade year to get into music, to pick up an instrument, uh, my mom, she brought home an instrument every couple of weeks. Um, this is probably the summer before sixth grade. So she'd bring home a flute for a couple of weeks, a trombone for a couple of weeks, a trumpet for a couple of weeks, and wouldn't really give me any direction. She'd quite literally just open the door to my bedroom and just kind of set it down. She's like, there you go. Didn't yeah. give me any direction. Just let me explore. Um, which looking back now, that was pretty amazing for me because I had to figure out how to play these various instruments moving forward. And having in the, the background this this idea that, well, if you're a musician, you don't just play one instrument, you play several instruments, because that's what my mom does. And she's she was the example that was most that was closest to me. Um so growing up through there, ended up picking the 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 trumpet. Um so I was I'm now a reformed trumpet player, a recovering <laughs> trumpet player. And did that all through junior high and high school, had a very traditional upbringing through there, did all region, all state, all that marching band, concert band, jazz band, all that fun stuff. And the the summer after high school, um, picked up the bass because, again, the uh, my mother's jazz quintet was rehearsing at the house. And not only did she have a Rhodes keyboard, but the bass player um, left his little Fender bass over there. So I would pick it up and I learned how to play uh, certain tunes. And at the time, it kind of convinced myself that I knew how to play bass. Years later, fast forward, picked up, picked up the bass again after high school and kind of got in a uh, band with a few friends around playing Metallica and Megadeth and just playing metal and um, ended up going into attending my local school where my father was also a sociology professor. This kind of ties into something I'll mention here in a moment. Um, so picked up the bass and asked the, the band director there, said, hey, you've got plenty of trumpets in the jazz, man. Can I can I take the bass chair? He was like, yeah, absolutely. We'd love to have a bass player. You're right. We do have plenty of trumpets. So very, I was going to say very slowly, very quickly, I transitioned over to the electric bass from the trumpet and really kind of put the trumpet down for the most part. Uh, I then transferred uh, to the University of Memphis um, because my bass teacher was kind of said, hey, I've done all that we can here. You need right. to go somewhere else. So did that. Um, ended up getting a, I continued playing trumpet in the marching band there and, but picked up the electric, declared as a jazz major. They said, well, if you want to play electric, um, if you want to be a jazz major, you have to play upright as well. 
I kind of, you know, shrugged my shoulders and was fine, fine. I'll play upright too. And uh, ended up getting my undergraduate in jazz and classical bass, again, kind of following in my mom's footsteps, double majoring. And then also my master's did a jazz and classical um, uh, bass concentration as well. But then during the time in Memphis, just playing gigs constantly, sometimes doing seven nights a week, doing doubles and triples. Excuse me. Um, let me take a drink of coffee. All good. I'll edit this out. Yeah, that's, I was just going to say you can edit that out. So, yep. so during that time, I was playing probably seven nights a week, pulling doubles and triples sometimes. And it didn't really matter if it was a Brahms Beethoven gig with the symphony or, you know, a bebop gig playing Bird and Dizzy Gillespie or whether it was a salsa gig or an R&B or blues or recording session. I didn't care what it was. Just anything that came my way I wanted to prepare myself to be able to take it. So that's kind of how I approached playing um, playing the bass and being a musician. And then after I did that for years, went on the road with the band at a Nashville for a couple of years, just again, playing thousands upon thousands of gigs in the incredibly musical, musically rich city of Memphis and uh, more often than not having my backside handed to me, which right. again was and it's an incredible, incredible learning experience, which really formed the basis, not only of me as a musician, but also as an educator. So finished up my um, finished up my degrees there and got off the road and found out that there was a position in Colorado that I applied for. It was a part time gig so I could still be uh, I could I could teach, but I could still play full time, moved to Colorado and ended up taking a, a position where. They said, well, we'd love for you to, to build a like a commercial music program here. I said, OK, well, tell me more about that. And they said, we don't really know. We were hoping you could tell us. <laughs> That's great. And uh, they said, you know, well, what are your strengths? I said, well, you know, electric, upright. I've done a lot of marketing, promotion, playing gigs, contract law, IP, copyright, recording, touring, merchandising. Just went down the bucket list and they sat there and kind of shook their heads and pointed at me and said, yeah, that. And I was yeah that that what and they're like we want you to build a program that encompasses all of that. So for the next 19 years, uh, I um, uh, developed and um, coordinated and organized this program, this commercial music program, uh, which at the time was unlike any other program in the country. Um, we didn't have a concert band. We didn't have an orchestra. We had jazz bands, combos. We had an R&B band, a soul band, salsa bands. Um, guitar bands, um, all these various ensembles. And the whole idea was, again, popular music was at the center of it. And how can I prepare my students? How I'm going to back up. How can I give my students a, multiple once-in-a-lifetime opportunities in popular music, whether it's playing gigs, bringing in Grammy Award-winning musicians, going into the studio, going on tour, uh, whether or not they want to pursue music or, or if they perhaps wanted to continue with a career in music. So again, did that, um, was wildly su successful there, won uh, 15 downbeat awards. The students wow. were playing 30 to 40 gigs a year. Um, a lot of those without me, because wow. the whole drive was, how can I, how can I teach myself out of a job? How can I get the students to the point to where they can pick the tunes, learn the tunes, run the rehearsals, run the show, run the PA, run the recording session, do all that um, without any assistance from me. That's awesome. And 
obviously it was, you know, it was varying levels of that over the years. Sometimes we could really, we could, we were hitting on all cylinders. And sometimes, you know, I did have to handle um, uh, on, on maybe more than I wanted to, but again, it was that developing that, that culture to where the students were, were at the, the front of every decision. So we talk a lot about student voice and choice. And um, at the time I didn't, I wasn't aware of that concept because again, all my degrees are in performance, not in education. Um, because again, my mom and my dad were teachers. So I knew the, the dark underbelly of teaching and did not want to be a teacher in any way, shape or form. Now, here I am 25 plus years later um, with a uh, you know music educator, um, currently the president of the Association for Poppy Music Education. I left this job at Kent, at, at Kent Denver School in Colorado to pursue a PhD in music education, just finished that up this summer. So a very long kind of circuitous route trying to avoid my mother and father's uh, <laughs> profession. And despite my, despite my efforts, ended up there anyway. And there is nowhere else I would rather be in my life. That's awesome. Steve, first of all, so many uh, um, parallels. Um, I, I, I didn't have that type of uh, performance career, but when you said your mm -hmm. mom was the lead in MAME, my mom was on Broadway in MAME, the original production with Angela Lansbury. So, oh, that's incredible. Yeah, no, as soon as you said, my mom's actually uh, on the cast recording. She played the part of Pegeen Ryan, who is MAME's maid. Um, and so, yeah, that, and my mother was a massively influential person in my kind of career, you know, having a Broadway actress and dancer who opened a yeah. studio, there's a lot of parallels. And I always know when I meet somebody and instantly like them, there's probably a lot in the background that, that lines up. Um, absolutely fascinating story, um, and amazing program that you built there. Uh, and I know that, uh, you know, your uh, PhD will definitely serve you well in whatever comes next. But what I'd like to do is talk about APME, which is what I call it, the Association yeah. of Popular Music and Ed Education. Um, you know, I, I'm sure, uh, well, I had nowhere near the, the pedigree and, and background of what you've done in that genre. Um, I have always been interested in teaching popular music to my mm -hmm. kids. Um, as, as, as a general music teacher, it was something I did. But when I started my own school of rock at my middle school, because the kids thought I, I reminded them of Jack Black's character, uh, <laughs> which is, I don't know if it was a compliment or not, but they were like, exactly do this. Um, the first and only standing ovation I ever received in my career as a band director was when I let the winners of the Battle of the Bands who were playing You Really Got Me by the Kinks. Yeah close out my winter concert full on um you know or spring concert full on standing ovation i went what what and it's because the parents were like this is the music this is exactly <laughs> you know we don't want to hear your cheesy arrangement of harry potter themes we want to hear the music that we like and i just went what the hell have i been doing like why so i'd love to hear about what the mission of that app me is what you do there and and what what you'd like to um, share with music educators who might be considering integrating popular music into their curriculum? Yeah, absolutely. So the organization, um, our hashtag is it is find your people, and I mentioned that because for years when I was doing this, when I was teaching um, in this this commercial music program, I quite literally thought it was me, a couple of friends in Memphis, 
um, a colleague of mine in Utah and maybe three or four other people who are doing this, this, I, this, who are doing popping music at the secondary level. I just, I was ignorant. I only knew, knew what I knew. So oddly enough, when the organization, when the Association for Popular Music Education had their conference in Denver, which is where I was, I believe in 2016, ah, cool. um, the the person who was headed who headed up the songwriting program um, at in um, at the University of Colorado, Denver, who was a former student of mine, reached out and said, hey, Steve, I think you should check these folks out. They seem to be, you know, right up our alley. It's like, right. yeah, they'd be great. So applied to present, um, applied to bring the bands. And that's where I met. Uh, a whole bunch of people um, that I still talk to. Um, as I just mentioned, I had coffee with one of them this morning. I texted with one of them last night, had dinner with drinks with another last week. So all these people who I didn't know existed seven, eight years ago, they're not only my community, they're my family now. So yep. that's what it really comes down to with the organization. Our The idea is our, our mission statement is to promote and advance popular music at all levels of education, both in the classroom and beyond. And that's one area that beyond that I'm really trying to lean into is how can we, all the things that happen outside the classroom in popular music, how can we bring those experiences of the professional musicians of the music industry, of touring musicians, of singer songwriters, what are ways that we can bring that into the classroom in an authentic manner, in a real manner, and give these kids, again, more of these once in a lifetime experiences, help them to maybe, and I might get myself in trouble here, but help them to learn how to create and maybe not simply just recreate music. Yep. Yep. Not that recreating is bad. I mean, the, the program I had at, at my school was effectively a really it was a kick-ass cover band is basically what it was. Right. We didn't do a lot of songwriting, um, but the idea was how can I give the students this musical vocabulary through learning uh, all these songs that, yeah, their parents loved. And then and eventually they ended up um, uh, learning to love as well and really diving in. And so with APME, we're really just a community of musicians, teachers, music industry professionals, scholars, music teacher educators, and really anyone who has an interest in popular music education. And the whole idea is how can we support those folks who are looking for ways to incorporate popular music into their classrooms? And also what are ways that they can take, um, maybe find ways to uh, incorporate ways of learning and teaching popular music, just the, the way that popular musicians learn and that professional musicians learn, how can we bring those ways, those manners, those approaches into the classroom as well. So that's what the that's who the organization is, and that's what we're trying to do. Um, we're a fairly young organization, but we're growing. Um, this year we have conferences in Los Angeles and our first full-fledged European conference in Edinburgh, Scotland. And our membership is growing through the roof. We've recently started some chapters. So we have um, local uh, local folks in various areas throughout the country and abroad who are finding times just to get together for a Zoom coffee or dinner or lunch. And just, again, how can we all support each other um, outside the three or four days of the conference and create community at the conference? Yeah, but how can that community then filter down and support us all and eventually support and benefit students throughout the remainder of the year as well? Yeah, um, and I'll I'll drop a link um, to AppMe in the description of the podcast. So if you're interested in finding out more, please just go pause the podcast right now and go click on that. But Steve, what you you said something that um that that cer certainly resonated with me when I joined the corporate world uh, now 17 years ago. Mm. Um, the 
biggest and and it still is the thing that I love most about my job is getting to travel around and see a whole bunch of different music teachers doing amazing yeah. things. And one of my first trips back in 2008, uh, I met uh, an amazing music educator at Huntington Beach High School named Jamie Knight. I don't know if you know Jamie. J Jamie and I are dear friends. Okay, so I remember going to his um, school and being like, this is unlike any, you know, I've seen other teachers doing cool stuff, but this mm -hmm. is this is other level cool. And he had this kind of retro fest where these kids would recreate an album. It was one of the coolest things in the world. And Jamie said something that was very similar to what you just said, mm -hmm. that he thought he was the only one in the, in the country. <laughs> yeah. I, You're not there. Believe it or not. There are a lot of other, they're not, it's not a hundred, it's not 200, you know, yeah. it, it is, but, but there's about 50 other people doing what you do. You need to mm -hmm. get to know these people. And he was like blown away. He's like, what are you talking about? I said, no, I, I've been all around, man. I'm telling you there, there are other programs like this and, and he should have known that, you know, over a mountain range uh, in Colorado, <laughs> amazing things, but it is amazing how isolated a lot of these programs are. And I'm so Truly. happy that AppMe is there to, um, because now they all know each other. Uh, and you're right, it is find your people. And whenever I hang out with uh, popular music educators, you know, they'll have different hair, they'll have tattoos. They'll be like, this is cool. This is this is where all the cool cats are. So uh, yeah, please go and check out membership. I'm gonna be at the, uh, the U, I think it's at USC this year. I'm gonna be- It is, yeah, University of Southern California. And if I can convince, uh, you know, my boss to let me go to Edinburgh, I'll, I'll be there as well. Hey, hey. <laughs> so I'd love for you to, um, you know, as you probably know, there is a faction within the music education profession mm -hmm. that thinks what you're doing with popular music or or the integration of popular music is terrible. And and there's there was an article written by a professor who I won't name. Um, who who did a reaction to uh, David Williams' article, The Elephant in the Room. Um, and there was immediately after in the MEJ, uh, you know, this kind of just absolute tearing down David's amazing article and that this yeah. fly-by-night crappy music that we shouldn't be teaching and that we're giving it legitimacy. Um, I would love to know your opinion about what, what you think the role of popular music is within a music program. You just want to dive in right there, huh, Jim? Let's do it. Yeah, let's do it. All right. Hey, let's let's you you're big to edit this because we could we could we could spend the entire time in this. We could do right. a series of podcasts on this. Yeah. Um. Again, for me, it comes down to what's best for the student. How can we help them to become? How can we help engage students in music? Period. Yep. Not help them engage in jazz or concert or orchestral or chamber or acapella. It's just how can we engage them in music? And for me, it's really by any means necessary. Um, music education, dear Lord, we love our labels. Um, we love our labels and we love our acronyms. We love, oh, well, you're a jazz major. Oh, well, you're a classical major. Oh, well, you're a, a you're, a, we, we, you're an ethnomusicologist. We love the, these various labels. And it's the same in the music industry as well. But I think in music education, we talk about, you know, band, orchestra, choir, band, orchestra, choir, jazz. So we have BOC, BOCJ, BOCJ, PMXYZ. Yep. <laughs> um, to me, music is just music. And that was what I tried to, to uh, that's the what I tried to attain in my professional life as a musician. It didn't matter what the style of music was. Um, I, I just wanted to be a part of it. I enjoyed playing music, period.
Yep. All kinds of music. And so I try to, whenever I'm in the classroom or in a rehearsal, is to bring that joy and convey that and relate that um, to and with the students as well. Because to me, all music has educational value. All music has creative value in the classroom. And again, going back to that notion of whether we create it or whether we recreate it. Because even with even within the, the um, silos of popular music, there is a discussion of, oh, what's well, only popular music if you're creating? Well, no, but we need to. What about the canon? Is the Beatles the canon? Is Sly and the Family Stone the canon? We're having these same conversations as well. But for me, it really comes down to um, we have about there's roughly about 80 percent of kids um, who who are simply quite quite honestly, they're walking by our band, choir and orchestra rooms every day. Yep. Um, and they take a look in and they don't see folks that look like them. They don't hear music that they listen to. Um, they're like, yeah, that's that's not for me. They're not buying what we're selling. So I'm not saying let's burn down the 20 percent and start over. I'm saying there are 20 percent of kids who are enjoying what they're doing in music. How can we create additional? It's not either or it's both. And yep. I think once we get past that and past we get quite honestly, once we get past our egos of, oh, well, this is what music education should be and broaden that, that definition, that idea of that's, that's the definition of a paradigm. Yep. Um, really base what we do, not so much on what we've always done, but what we could do as well. Um, so I think for me, that's, that's one area that I really look at. And, but here, I'm going to even say this, speaking of tradition and again, going, going back to my mother, um, she seems to be the, the central touch point of this so far. Um, so I did a presentation a couple of two or three years ago where I brought up the music teacher education um, graduation requirements um, at my university, mm -hmm. which synced up with any other NASM school as well. This was, a, let's say, 2021. I then brought up um, a the graduation requirements um, from 1958 for my mother um, side by side. Guess what looks strikingly similar? <laughs> so if we're going to continue this cycle of a student in high school thinks they want to be a band director, and then they go they go through an audition process that that privileges them, and then goes through a music education, uh, a music teacher education, which privileges certain ways of doing and teaching, learning, learning, doing and teaching music, and then come out of there, and then they get a job in that in, in in doing what they had done in high school we have this almost cyclical effect and until we again i don't want to say break the cycle but we until we find ways to add to that cycle and change the way that um some folks think i think there's always going to be an argument but to be quite honest i think even in just the last four or five years there are fewer and fewer people who are are arguing about that. I was um when you and I were just at the the the, the Kazmet conference in in uh, California last week, a couple weeks yeah. ago. Um, I last presented there just before uh just before COVID. So I guess twenty twenty. It was just before COVID. Yeah, <laughs> February twenty twenty. And I remember I was talking about this, and you start seeing people shifting in their chairs and giving crossing their arms and giving me the side eye. And um, I presented this this past week on a very similar topic. And standing room, people are coming in, folks talking to me afterwards, no side eyes, no, you know, rotten tomatoes or cabbage coming my way. 
So I just think people are just vastly more open to the idea of, okay, what are some other ways that we can do this? Yeah, um, per perhaps COVID was a little bit of a reset because it was a reset for a lot of people. Um, and maybe, maybe there, um, you know, there, I always look for silver linings, um, but I, I couldn't agree more, Steve. I do see a, a shift in mentality. Mm -hmm. When I was just in uh, Germany with the Dodia teachers at the EMEA conference, yeah. Mod Modern Band was a huge part of it. Br uh, Dr. Brian Powell was there, my good friend who you, you mm -hmm. know as well. And uh, every those sessions were packed. Everybody was strumming ukulele songs and and singing Ed Sheeran. Um, <laughs> it, you know, it it I do feel that uh, that it that a positive impact has been made, and it's becoming more approachable, which is great. Yeah, I just think it comes back to that again. That that both and for me, it's whether it's popular music or whether it's it's salsa or mariachi or reggaeton or cumbia or gamelan, pick pick a, a style of afro beats pick a style of music it's just an, another way that we can reach more kids it just think i guess if you think about bob ross he would have his his colors on his palette yep. you know he would typically have either titanium white phthalo blue um it just gives us more colors on the palette yep. it just gives us more ways to reach more kids why will we not want to do that is i guess my question you're here yeah so I'm going to, uh, you know, this is a, a music tech podcast, so we're going to take a left. What? <laughs> I know. <really. laughs> um, and I'd love to know how you, what your opinion is or, or your thoughts on how music tech fits into this whole popular music equation. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, you mentioned the pandemic a, a couple of minutes ago, and I think it, it definitely was a reset for a lot of folks. And I think it was also a chance for, unfortunately, for some folks to become more entrenched in what they believed before the pandemic in terms of, oh, well, technology is difficult. It's expensive. I don't know how to do this. I have to learn a whole new way of doing things. I already went to college. I already learned. Um, but I think, but I think, again, I think that, that that's a, luckily, I think that's a minority. Um, in terms of technology and popular music in, in the programs that I've run, uh, technology was at the heart of it. And it was really every day we, tech, we we dealt with technology in some way, shape, or form. Um, and that was whether we're in the, and that's even, and, and technology has always been in the music industry, whether we go back to wax discs or Ampex tapes, and now working with, with digital audio workstations, um, popping music and music in general has been captured and disseminated via technology. And for me, understanding, being fluent in these various ways to record, produce, edit, and distribute music, for me, can only deepen the experience um, in the classroom. And when I say in the classroom, I mean the entire learning environment, not just for the students, but also for the teacher as well. Because I think, again, we talk a lot about a co-learning environment, but for me, that's one of the things that I love most about working in the classroom is that I get to continue learning as well about things that I just maybe had vague knowledge of or yep. zero knowledge of. And a lot of the times it's it's the students teach me and I am, again, try to lead, I attempt to leave my ego at the door and come in with a clean slate and just say, hey, wh what y'all got? So for me, technology has always been in some way, shape or form present. Um, specifically, what we would typically do in the classroom is um, it would start maybe with uh, with the rehearsal in terms of how do we choose songs. It would be back, you know, we would create a collaborative Spotify playlist or collaborative YouTube list. 
uh, create songs from there. We would then learn songs um, based on uh, what we were listening to. Um, sometimes we would notate them. Sometimes we would not. Sometimes we would use, say, flat or muse score or one of the, or, or a finale product. Um, sometimes students would would handwrite. Um, I would not handwrite because my manuscript is wretched. So for me, technology, in terms of notation technology, is a true blessing because that could that was a lot of times that was the only way I could convey what I wanted to. So yeah, these various ways of notating a song um, or not, um, various ways of learning tunes, whether it's using the back when the amazing slower downer or using the settings on YouTube or, you know, slowing things down, uh, slowing a tune down in a DAW um, or using any of the dozens upon dozens of apps that are out there that can help folks learn these tunes. Um, we would often record in class. And by often, I would mean uh, pretty much every other class. We would do some sort of recording where it might just be on my phone where we would want to do a kind of an in the moment. Hey, let's let's figure out this sounds pretty good going by. Let's just hit record and see if if it sounds good in context and maybe what we can hear. And so we were in doing a lot of critical listening that way as well. And then we would also we were lucky enough to have a, a Pro Tools studio um, in our rehearsal area as well. My office was the control room. So, again, students would come in. I would have mics all set up eventually got to the point to where students would come in early, they would set up all the mics. Yep. They would run all the cables. They would do all that. Um, so they would take care of that. And again, they would also set up the sessions. They would run the sessions. Um, so it could be something like that. And we would also often go off campus um, to these recording studios. Again, finding ways to not only include technology, but also various experiences to where, I mean, a lot of students can, a lot of my students can say that they recorded at Al Green Studio in Memphis. Oh, cool. And use and use the 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 drums that were on all of Al's tunes. One of my vocalists got to use Al's number nine mic. And if you don't wow. know what that is, go Google Al Green wow. number nine microphone. Um, you know, it was the the B three that they used on on all those tunes. So just those experiences, not only from a, a technological point of view, but also from a cultural point of view. And that's something we haven't touched on. And which again, that could be a whole series there as well to just. Totally. When we're in rehearsals, um, setting up the PA, you know, we would have a, a practice PA where the vocalists would come in and they would set up their mics, they would set their EQs, they would set their mono levels, um, and then they would go warm up in the next room while the rest of the band warmed up and did what they need to do. And they would come back in and then again, they would run the rehearsals to when they would run the rehearsals and more often than not, you'd find me off in a corner, just kind of, again, trying to coach from afar because the idea was, how can I teach myself out of a gig? Not that I'm going to, you know, they could fire me because they no longer need me. But how can I get the students to the point to where to where they if, if I drop off the stage, if I'm not on the stage, if I can't make the gig, no big deal. If someone has to sub the gig, if the vocalist can't find parking for the first tune, if one of the guitar players can't make the gig because they have a conflict with a sports game. Hey, no big deal. We've done this. We right. know what to do. And then for me, it's that confidence that they that they gain in all these situations that then spill over into other areas of their lives. So really, technology was at the heart of everything we did uh, every single day. Yeah. And I think, you know, 
for any music teacher who has not had the experience of playing in a band, and I'm not talking mm. about not talking about you know a traditional BCO J. Yeah, yeah. I I played <laughs> I played in a cover band for a whole bunch of years. I play keyboards, and you know think of think about how you operate within a cover band. So here's a perfect example, Steve, that you brought immediately to mind. Um, the band wanted to play Miami 2017 by Billy Joel. For those of you who don't know the tune, it's I've seen the lights go out on Broadway and I'm the keyboard player. And I it was like every other musician I know, the way I learned the tune is I went on like ultimate guitar and found the chord changes first. Then I went to YouTube. And of course there are a million tutorials on how mm -hmm. to play the opening. Cause you know, I can, I can play a little bit by ear, but I really wanted to see like exactly what notes he was playing. And yep. so I went on YouTube and there was like one of those over the head shots and I'm, I'm and I'm, you know, I'm learning it. And then we, we get to the um, first rehearsal, the bass players got bass tab written out. The guitar players got uh, you know, a chord sheet. Yeah, I've exactly. got my, I've got my phone with my chords on it, and at, not at any point did I say to myself, "Oh, I'm using technology." It was, yeah, I got to learn this tune. We have a rehearsal in three days. It's a pretty, you know, pretty complicated keyboard part. Um, that's exact. It's just the tools that popular music or musicians use. Um, yeah, you know, in the traditional sense, when it's just a stick and paper and and a brass instrument in your face. You're, maybe you're not, maybe you're just using a tuner or a metronome, mm -hmm. but in the world of pop music, it, you can't pull technology out of it. I mean, it's what's driving the amplifier. It's what's driving the sounds in my keyboard. You know, I, I think that um, for a lot of people, uh, you know, the notion of, well, how do I integrate tech? If you put pop music into your program, there you go. Uh, yeah, you, you absolutely. Without even thinking about it. It's just part of the entire genre. Exactly. It, 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 it's part and parcel. And it would be it would be more difficult to, to find ways to to bypass bypass technology um, in, 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 the, in those areas. I, I, I love what you were just saying right there. And, you know, one of the going back to the question you had a minute ago about there are, uh, you know, folks who say, well, you know, pop music isn't isn't real music. It's not educational. One of the things that I would often do talking about when students learn learn the tunes is, yeah, how can they learn them? Whether it's it's the the peer to peer engagement, pulling up their phone. If if I'm working with the vocalist and the keyboard player is tr is searching for the correct patch for Toto's Africa or whatever, and the drummer is looking for you know a tutorial, and the bass player and the keyboard or the guitar player and the keyboard player are over trying to figure out okay who has what's the best voicing for this so they can so they can spread out the voicing. For, that's part of, of 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 what happens in in those environments is it's taken the it's less direct instruction it's taken more of the responsibility off me and placing more of the responsibility on the learner and isn't that what we're really there for exactly. is to is to is to help coach those folks through their learning process because it's their music it's their band it's their learning process so how can we how can we support them and as teachers, one of the ways I did that um, in terms of notation specifically is if a student did come in and they had tab, I would go, hey, that's awesome. Good on you. Do you know what these lines mean and what they, you know, oh, it's the it's the frets on, it's the strings on the instrument, it's the frets on the instrument. And I say, well, what, what might that look like if we were to, you know, write that out, whether it's a notation or chords or something like that? It's how can I scaffold what they already know 
And the term, and you know this, you know, with through the going through the doc programs is students come in with these funds of knowledge. Yep. How do we take what they already have, the stuff they already know, and how do we build from there? How do we approach music education from an asset-based perspective and not a deficit-based perspective where we go, oh, you don't know how to read Western notation. Uh-oh. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and say, oh, you know how to do tab. Great. How do I scaffold it from there to where they can, can, can and continue challenging um, them and all the other students in, in the classroom and myself as well? Love it. All right. I have time for uh, two more quick questions for you, Steve. The first is the advice. And so yeah. what, you know, what advice would you give a music teacher, you know, been teaching middle school chorus for 25 years and is like, all right, Steve. All right, Jim, you convinced me. I'm, gonna, <laughs> I'm doing it. I'm going to, I'm going to start a modern band program, wh whatever label you want to call it. What, yeah, yeah. What, what advice would you give uh, to the teacher? Just rip off the bandaid. St don't procrastinate. Just jump in, jump in and download Soundtrap or, you know, pull up your phone and open up GarageBand. Um, you know, find a, a, a guitar or a bass, listen to some music, um, take a look at some of these tutorials that we've been looking at online. Um, just jump in, get your hands dirty, ask questions, reach out to folks in the Association for Popular Music Education, plug, plug. Yep. Um, you know, again, look for professional development opportunities where you can learn from folks where you can be supported by folks who've been doing this for 5, 10, 15, 20 years and have made all those mistakes and hopefully have learned from our mistakes and learned from our failures and have the experience to say, hey, given your demographics and your community and what you're wanting to do and what I hope the students and the community are wanting to do as well, here are some things that work for us. See how they work for you. Just again, make those mistakes, learn from those mistakes, rinse, repeat. Exactly. I love it. And, and you know, there AppMe is one of a, of a couple of really fabulous organizations. Obviously, mm -hmm. Little Kids Rock now, uh, Music Will has been around for 20 years as well. There's the Modern Band Summit that's out in Fort Collins every the end of June, I believe it is. Um, there are places, there are resources. Uh, I blogged about the Music Will free resources that are on there. And and, and AppMe, you know, what better place to be at the in June uh, than L.A. And, um, and the campus, the most beautiful campus? I, I Oh, my gosh. Yeah, yeah seriously. Yeah. You know, and, and, and there, there, there are, are more and more resources out there. Um, I wrote a book. Uh, the year the year before my my PhD program called Coaching about Popular Music Ensemble, um, it's on Amazon Amazon and F Flat Books, and it's kind of all it's the secret sauce yep. of what I figured out through failure um, is the experiences that I accumulated over the course of of my my professional playing life and my professional teaching life. Um, there are other I'm going to stop just short of using the word methods, but there are other approaches and ways of doing things that other people have spoken to. And again, just, yeah, take a look out there. There are all these resources out there and all these various ways of doing things. Um, you know, I don't necessarily approach a popular music rehearsal um, or, or learning a song the same way maybe a, a, a music well or a modern band person type right. might. I tip me personally, I don't use the term modern band because I've never played a modern band gig, but again, <laughs> both and it's, you know, if, yeah, if no. that organization is doing, they're reaching some, uh, a, a number of folks. And I think what they're doing is great. And there are also these other folks out there um, who are doing equally great work. So it takes, Absolutely. it takes a community to build a community.
Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. And I'll drop a link to your book uh, in the in the description of this podcast as well. Thanks. So, Steve, the last question I have is 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 always the hardest, but it drum roll. I, I love int- I, I love hearing from different people. If you had a magic wand and could have music tech do something that it can't do now, what would it be? Oof. Yeah, I thought I thought long about this. And honestly, listening to your podcast in the past, I, I was I recalled a couple of times where, you know, when you've asked that question, hmm, what would I do? And I think the answer for me has changed over time. Yep. And for me, it really comes down to there's not an, an, a specific technological or pedagogical approach or innovation. For me, it's it's kind of a pie in the sky thing, but I'll just toss it out there. Right. Um, for me, and you, we were speaking about earlier, it's how can we figure out ways to, to remove all these preconceived notions and these biases around how we do music education and really come to grips and a better understanding of there are multiple uh, multifaceted ways of doing music education and really what a transformative music education might look like. And also who gets to participate in that music education and not only from a student level, but also from a teacher standpoint as well. Again, another another rabbit hole. We won't. We don't have time to go down now. But yeah, that's the idea. We we talk a lot about. I mentioned earlier the co learning um, atmospheres and student voice and choice. And we also talk a lot about access in music education. We talk a lot about equity in music education. How do we think? How do we approach this through a both and perspective and really say, okay, what's best for the students? Maybe and what's best for the profession, what's best for the teachers. We're all in this together. How do we build this community to where we can more readily, more effectively um, build this community, nurture this community, support this community and realize that tradition and innovation, um, they're not mutually exclusive. Mm. So that's where I'd go. I love it. Steve, you're you're fantastic. Uh, I, I really, <laughs> I, I knew this would be a great conversation and you delivered. A, thank you so much for being on the podcast. And for those teachers listening that are interested, please check out the links that I have uh, in, in the uh, description so that you can find out more about the great work uh, that Steve does. Thank you so much, Steve. Have a wonderful uh, rest of your uh, school year. Jim, thank you so much. I appreciate it. I've been waiting on this for a while. So it's a joy to get to talk to you this afternoon. Thanks so much. Awesome. Take care. Thank you for listening to Profiles in Teaching with Technology from Music First. For more information about Music First, please visit www.musicfirst.com. If you would like to stay up to date with other music teachers doing innovative things in their classrooms with technology, please subscribe to our podcast through whatever outlet you listen to podcasts on. Thanks for listening.